Wow. That was a good pod. That was, well, you, you said it yourself. You dubbed it as one of your most enjoyable chats, didn't you? I just got so much from that chat, yeah. Um, for listeners, we just had Daryl O'Connor on, no relation, um, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Leeds and his expertise is in stress. Um, so we had a really big chat about stress, um, how it affects us, how we respond to it, coping mechanisms if your stress response is a bit faulty. Um, and yeah, like we've just finished it now, but um, I've just got so much in that chat. It was massive and I mentioned a little bit of inspiration from Dom Smith a few weeks ago. His quote was to challenge your mental health and um, that's certainly what we've talked about um, in case of stress and how to manage it best. Um, Daryl run through so many different things that, that we could do. We were really in the thick of the conversation. I talk, spoke a little bit about my attitude towards stress as a rugby league player and Daryl uh, offered quite a lot of perspective helped me out as an individual but also I think it will help so many people so many listeners and so many men listening to this podcast today shall we mention the Mentality Club Chris? Let's give it a shout out yeah yeah I want to uh, mention the Mentality Club on the back of this because I think it's we get a lot of good information from this podcast but we do have a Mentality Club uh, for listeners that don't know and that is Patreon dot com forward slash mentality you can have a look at all the information on there for the different levels of support that we can receive we do try and do it without sponsors we only vouch for sponsors that we value and we have the same values as us we've got a growing number of mentality club members where it's a support network and social support which we actually talk about in this podcast a lot we have social meetups and we also send out gym workouts once a month which is just kind of involving the idea that Don mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, to challenge your mental health, and it's a constant focus on that. We've just got them to write about their goals as well. We're going to yeah. send them out to them in the post, um, hopefully help a few of them achieve them. So, um, yeah, it's a really good supportive network. And yeah. just back to this chat, we've done a lot of chats on this podcast, and there's been some really good ones, but this is, for me, one of the most important for people listening that we've done. Um, I think there's so much in here that we can all apply to our everyday lives and um, hopefully everyone will get loads from it. Boom, let's do it. Boom, we're on. Daryl, awesome to have you here, mate. We've got Daryl O'Connor on the podcast, teed up by fellow... Man, I hailing from Ireland, Chris O'Connor. No We've relation, got, but uh, maybe no distant. Relation. But. Who knows? Who knows? But um, professor of psychology at Leeds University, where we've done quite a bit of work, um, mentality workshops, mentality talks as well. Um, so it's great to have you down here, mm. mate. Um, just for the listeners and and for for Chris and, and myself, I guess, could you give a little bit of a background on on your career and 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 also for for Chris's interest, hailing from Ireland too, Paul. Thanks, guys, and thanks for the invitation. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, a really worthy podcast and magazine that you guys have got going here. Um, so I'm a health psychologist. So I'm a professor of psychology. So I'm a health psychologist and a psychobiologist. So I'm interested in how uh, psychological factors and processes can influence our health, our well-being, and ultimately how long we live. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'm a, a fellow Irish individual. Um, so I hail from Derry um, in Ireland and... So I've been in England now for many, many years. I did my undergrad training and my PhD at the University of Liverpool. And then I moved to uh, the University of Manchester to work for the World Health Organization on a postdoc there. And then subsequently I've been at Leeds. Um, I came here uh, whenever Leeds United were uh, doing very well in the Champions League and back yeah. in 2000. 
And subsequent to that, I've, I'm a professor um, of psychology at the university. So yeah. that's ancient history now, isn't it? Leeds United doing well. The listeners, we're recording this pod the day mm. after Leeds have just lost the derby. And the topic is about stress. So I, think I think it's a very relevant yeah, um, There'll be topic some interesting as of yesterday. So Darrell mentioned that he, he, he moved to Leeds um, when Leeds United were in the semi-final of the Champions League. Um, and as of recording last night, we just watched Leeds tumble out of the semi-final of the playoffs to get into of the, the championship of the yeah. championship. Yeah. Very different. So stress, we, me and Chris watched it together um, and that was stress. Um, and this seems a very, a very um, reasonable topic to, to discuss. I was just wondering, uh, Daryl, if, if we could ask what is stress to you? So what was your interest in, in kind of really um, going specific on stress and, and, and what's your idea on stress? Well, so stress is a really important topic for many different reasons. So it's something which invades all of our lives. So every one of us experiences stress at different times, but stress means something different to each of us as well. So I always like to see stress as a bit of an umbrella term. So it can encounter, th- sorry, it can encompass things like large life events that happen to you. It could be, for example, Losing a major final, it could be um, having to, you know, becoming unemployed, losing a spouse, gaining a chronic disease. So they're kind of seen as large life events, but also it can it can also have small effects. So, so you get these things called daily stressors, things that happen to us on a moment to moment basis. It could be having to come and record a podcast. It could be having to give a talk. It could be a sporting um, episode which are seen as minor stressors. But what I've been interested in over a number of years is trying to understand how both these big stressors and these life events, as well as these minor daily stressors or daily hassles, can impact on our health and well-being and disrupt things. So as a result of that, so stress is anything where you then perceive that there's a demand in your life that you encounter, that you feel you don't have the resources to meet. So that's ultimately what a stressor is. When you feel this mismatch between the demand of a situation, so it could be an exam, it could be preparing for a sporting episode, it could be having to uh, give a talk. But if you feel you haven't got the resources to cope with that, that's when you experience stress. So it's how you appraise the event. So that's why what's important to it, it's a psychological construct. It's different for all of us. So... Stevie, would you find stressful? It might be very different to what Chris finds stressful, to what I find stressful. So it's how we appraise that situation. So a lot of it's based on perception of how much you can handle then. Absolutely, yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. So it's how you perceive the demand and the and your resources to meet that. And if we go back in time to how stress evolved, um, I guess it was more of a mechanism to keep us alive. Is that kind of its evolutionary by purpose. That's a great uh, point, Chris. Yeah, that's entirely the case. So stress, so this is the thing, that the, the role of stress has changed over many, many, many years uh, in, in evolutionary terms. So the stress response was developed to be an adaptive response. So the idea is, was, I often give this example where, you know, in, back in the day, in, in, in we'll use cave person days, when you might be out on the prairie and uh, you'd encounter a wildebeest, your stress response is there to go, okay, fight or flight. So the idea, that basic flea mechanism, where the body would then mount a response, which is mostly biological, would say, right, let's exit the situation or let's stay and try and meet this demand. And that was the result. So it's an acute response. So it's seen that we should respond and then the body would act. And then all the other associated mechanisms, physiological mechanisms would go back to normal. So your heart rate, your 
cortisol response, your immune response, should all then return to normal. But what we know over many years now is that those acute stressors are thankfully fairly rare in most of our lives. And the reason why I argue and others argue that the stress response has become damaging to our health and well-being is that most of the stressors we encounter either are lots of these small minor stressors, which means that the stress response is activated quite frequently, and also they could become chronic. So one of the biggest stressors that people encounter is, is their job. So job stress or job strain is, a, you know, is also seen as pervasive. So people who have these really chronically stressful jobs, uh, that means that their stress response system stays switched on. So coming back to your question, Chris, yes. So the idea, the stress response evolved to be adaptive, to deal with an immediate situation and then return to normal. But the concern is that we now are dealing with stress responses in a frequent uh, way in, in modern life. And as a result, the adaptive nature has been lost in many people. And what we try to understand is how can we help people switch off that more chronic response or the repetitive response? There's a really well-known theory, which um, there's this guy, really excellent neuroscientist uh, called Bruce McEwen, based at New York Rockefeller University. And he's put forward a theory which helps us understand when stress becomes damaging. He calls it this idea of allostatic load. And what he means by that is that it's this idea that the body is constantly exposed to stress. He says this leads to excessive wear and tear. And that he means that what ultimately leads to is excessive wear and tear of all our biological systems. It could be the cardiovascular system, it could be the endocrine system, it could be the immune system. And the point is that they stay switched on over a long period of time. That's no longer adaptive. That's damaging. And what we've been interested in in our lab in Leeds over many years now is trying to understand who's most vulnerable, uh, how long or what can we do to intervene and what sort of stressors might be most damaging. Mm, what, so you, I mean, you mentioned like the, the instance where, you know, thousands of years ago we might encounter wildebeest and the stress flight, flight, uh, fight or flight had come on um, and that would be active. What's, what would be a normal time in that case for the, for that response to kind of, as you say, to kind of um, like water down or to go down um, as opposed to what a normal time is for someone to be stressed now? I know it, it matters on the event, um, but like what would you say is a good time to, to kind of deal with the stress as a normal kind of reaction of the human body and then and then let it come back, return to, to um, a normal state of um, sympathetic nervous system? Sure, that's a great question as well, Stevie. So to me, it's actually not, well, there's two answers to that question. One is when you encounter any sort of stress, so the body should respond in real time. So whenever that stress is no longer a threat, it should return to normal. So that doesn't, so the, so the time in that context isn't necessarily as concerning to me. What's concerning is that response happening lots of times. So you imagine that's happening to you, you know, multiple times a day. Whereas we evolve for that to happen maybe once or twice a day, for example, or even once a day. So the concern is it's the repetitive nature of this. It's the repeat action, which is concerning. Um, but then the second answer to that is what is also concerning is that, well, let's use cardiovascular reactivity as an example. So there had been a theory for many years, which was that we're just looking at heart disease development. And there's lots of early work looking at stress is linked to heart disease. So what we used to know is that if some people have 
a large response to a stressor, so they have a greater cardiovascular blood pressure response compared to other individuals. And that was used to be seen as pretty damaging and concerning that you'd argue that people who had a bigger cardiovascular stress response, that could, to a stressor, either in real life or in the lab, that could predict developing cardiovascular disease or hypertension later on. So there's lots of work looking at that. So that's pretty concerning. But there's also been more recent work considering recovery from stress. So it's kind of touching upon what you said there. So there's also a concern that if some people take longer to recover. So say if I look at, let's look at Chris and look at you, Stevie. So we give you both the same stressor. So I take you into our lab. We expose you to a, a pretty acute stressor. And my concern would be that if Chris responds, both of you might respond the same. Your blood pressure rises to the same level. Then Chris might take 20 minutes to respond or 40 minutes to come back to baseline. You might take only 20 minutes. So our concern would be more for, for Chris, which would be the idea you're taking a longer recovery period, which means the system is staying active for longer, which means that's greater, more excessive wear and tear. And what's interesting to me is understanding why is it Chris is taking longer compared to you? It, there's lots of reasons. It could be, you know, physical activity levels. It could be, there could be some genetic reason. But also, I suppose what I've really been interested in recently is understanding some of the psychological factors which might explain the difference. And one of them is this variable called perseverative cognition, which sounds a bit of a mouthful, but what this basically is, the extent to which people worry or ruminate about stressful events. And what could be the case in Chris's example might be that Chris, when he encounters a stressful event, he spends more time worrying and ruminating. And I think it's something we should talk more about. It's a really important variable. And that worry and rumination is keeping the stress response switched on. Whereas you, over time, Stevie, you may have learned either to either switch that off or you're just the sort of person who doesn't worry and ruminate to the same extent. So your stress response will return to normal more quickly. So I think that's a really important individual differences where we as psychologists and psychological scientists can try and help people to intervene and to cope better, which helps them switch off that response more quickly. Um, a lot of what you said there has resonated massively with, um, with myself in the sense that a few years ago, I went through a really kind of tough time after a head injury. Um, I had really bad kind of depression, anxiety, OCD, and my life was ruminating over little things. And when you talk about that stress response, um, you know, I, when I was like 18, 19, I had a knife pulled on me and I was really, really, you know, stressed and I could feel that response physically. And then when I, my mid twenties, when I was going through this bad period, I would feel that same response over little things constantly. So that idea of it being kind of turned on all the time really resonated. And when, when I read your paper, mm. you know, a lot of things kind of clicked and I'm sure a lot of our listeners, you know, we get a lot of messages sent through and people are going through tough times where that stress response is kind of turned on all the time. Um, for myself, things like therapy and meditation and mindfulness, and we can talk about things which helped, um, really helped kind of rewire that kind of response in me. But if we talk about, say, I'd say it's a year and a half of my life was in an acute phase. I constantly felt like thoughts basically, or minor things I shouldn't worry about. Like maybe did I upset someone? Would I be ruminating? It caused me so much stress all the time. If you are in that kind of state for 10, 15, 20 years, what sort of things could this lead to? Is it I mean, that's a really, I mean, interesting. And I think, Chris, you're obviously not alone in individuals who've mm. had those sort of acute events, which have then had this knock-on effect to their well-being over a period of time. And it will be interesting maybe in the latter part to talk about some of the interventions that we can 
uh, that everyone can engage in, which either can be formal interventions, but also informally. Mm. I like to think of this idea of individuals having a psychological toolbox where you can think, let's choose which, which intervention do I want to use at this time. But look at the longer term impacts. That's where it's um, concerning to me. Uh, so there's different ways, there's different things which are relevant here. So um, my concern is that the long term impact of being exposed to stress or stress responses can both damage physical health as well as psychological health. So um, there's fairly robust evidence now showing that individuals who have their stress response state switched on for a long period of time, the back can lead to increased risk of cardiovascular disease. It can uh, expedite certain processes linked to cancer um, and cancer development. Uh, it can, you know, really simple examples of people who've been exposed to more chronic stress also experience more common colds. So I'm just using that as an example of showing that there's a link between a psychological variable of stress and an immune-mediated thing that we all experience, known as as um, as common cold or upper respiratory infections. Mm. But over the longer term, terms, there's there's the reduced longevity. So the idea that individuals who've had more stressful lives also, and those who individuals who also have more stress-type related personalities, which we could also talk about maybe later, they also die younger. So there's a really important variable called conscientiousness. And conscientiousness is a personality, one of the big five personality uh, factors. And individuals who are low in conscientiousness often are individuals who may encounter more stressful events, cope differently with stressors, appraise stressors differently. But what we know is that individuals who are low in conscientiousness die younger. So at any stage, if you compare somebody who's at the low end of conscientiousness with those at the high end, at any stage in their life, there's a number of really brilliant longitudinal studies over 50, 60 years. They are more like nearly a year and a half to two years shorter life at any stage. I mean, I think that's a really powerful effect. You know, if somebody said to me, you're going to die tomorrow, and then they say, but actually I'm going to give you one and a half, two years, I'd take it. You know, so that's a really powerful effect. So it's comparable mm. to effects like um, measuring cholesterol levels in adulthood or measuring blood pressure. So I'm just making a point that there's also traits which are linked to these factors in terms of how we cope with stress. Sorry, I'm just wary that we're firing a lot here. I just want to dig more into that point. Um, I understand what I think I understand what you mean by conscientious and and what low and, and high conscientiousness could be. Could you explain um, the differences in that um, for the result for that for for people? Sure. So, I mean, so individuals who well, let's use the high conscientiousness, and there's a range of these sort of um, traits. So they're also known as lower order facets. So it's not a straightforward. We've got this headline called conscientiousness. It was made up of these different traits. And one is people who are, who are high in conscientiousness are high on self-control. So, so let's use the converse. So obviously if you're low, then you, you're low on self-control. So you're less likely to be, be inhibit certain sorts of behaviors. People who are high, they're better planners. They're um, the more likely to adhere to rules. They're often high on achievement orientation. Uh, they are um, generally better organized. And they also, um, there's a thing called this called virtue. So they're either they're more likely to adhere to the rules and regulations of our society. So, but but to me, the crucial things are about self-control, achievement orientation, and um, planning and order. And these, and as a result, these traits help 
so in the high individuals, they protects them over their life. But those low and conscientious, they don't have those traits to protect themselves. So they are, they're more likely to, uh, they're less likely to exercise. They're more likely to, um, to die by suicide. They're more likely to be uh, drug takers, to eat unhealthily. All the sorts of behavioral factors that you would imagine put people to risk and reduce life. But the other thing maybe it's just worth saying, I to come back to Chris's point, is the work that we've also been doing very recently, which is really relevant, I think, um, to this podcast in terms of the focus on men, is that we've been also interested in how stress and cortisol and also early life events, um, particularly childhood trauma, are associated with suicidal behaviour. And we know that men, particularly younger men, are at higher risk of suicide for a variety of factors, you know, to do with they're less likely to seek help, um, the stigma around suicidal behavior, et cetera. Um, but what's really fascinating to us is that we've really recently in our lab here in Leeds have shown that we've got individuals who've recently tried to end their lives, um, individuals who've thought about ending their lives but never engaged in, 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 the, in the behavior, and also individuals who have no history of, of any of these issues. And we're able to show that when we expose them to a stressful event and then we measure the key hormone which is cortisol so cortisol is the hormone we release when we experience stress and what we, we've been able to show for, for nearly the first time is that we're able to show that individuals who have recently tried to end their lives they also have what we call a faulty stress response system or an impaired stress response system it means that they release less cortisol when they're stressed and that's concerning to us for a variety of reasons. It's concerning because it suggests that this really basic biological mechanism that we all need to survive and to navigate modern life is different in these individuals. And what we've also shown recently is that all of those individuals who've, who've tried to end their lives, 80% of them have experienced at least one type of childhood trauma, which is serious or severe. And it's actually, I find it genuinely upsetting that it's, you know, 80% of these individuals. And what we're able to show also was a link between this evidence of at least experiencing one serious childhood trauma and their stress response system. So what we're able to show is that the individuals who experience more severe stressful or childhood trauma, they are the individuals who release the least amount of cortisol, the stress hormone when we expose them to a stressful event. And that is concerning in many different levels. Can I but, just jump sorry, in very quickly there? So when I read your paper as well, I always had the kind of surface level understanding of cortisol that it's bad. So I thought that maybe, you know, not producing enough of it, I'd like to know why that's... A, I know it's, it means your stress response is faulty, and I'm sure there is a reason, but could you just explain why producing less cortisol in a stressful situation is a bad thing? So, I mean, this comes back to this idea of the adaptive nature versus the non-adaptive nature and this exposure over time. So we've de- we evolved to have this stress response, which should, we counter stressor, we should active respond to it. Cortisol should be released and all the other um, changes in the body and then should return to normal. So what our data show is that these individuals over time I suspect they used to have that stress response system and then the system breaks, putting it very simply. So it means that um, the body doesn't respond in an adaptive way anymore. And we 
often find this whenever um, exposure to stress over a long period of time. Um, so the concern is this is about chronic stresses versus adaptive. So you're absolutely right. You should release cortisol. We need cortisol because it activates all these things. It, 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 it tells us to, it tells the body to do lots of important things to meet the demands of an acute event. But over multiple times of exposure, that system stops working. And that's where it becomes concerning. Mm. So we call it dysregulation of the what's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So the HPA axis is the basic biological system that keeps um, the stress response alive, but many other things alive. So my concern is it's because they've been ex these individuals have been exposed to such extraordinary stressful events over their lives. But there's a really bright light at the end of this tunnel, which I, I, I think it's important to say. Mm. So in the particular study that we're referring to, and there's other studies we might talk about, which are we've tried to see as evidence in the real world. These are lab-based studies. But in our lab-based studies, so if we look at the individuals who've recently tried to end their lives, we have a group who, who very recently have attempted um, to take their lives in the last 12 months, that is. So, and we've had a group um, who've had an historical event, so it could be any time in their life. When we look at that group specifically and we compare the recent group with the lifetime group, what we find is that the lifetime group, their cortisol levels are starting to return to a more conventional profile, closer to individuals who have had no history. But those who've recently tried to end their lives, their cortisol response, like I, I call it, like it's, if it's flatlining. And that's initially was concerning, but the really bright um, light in my mind is that that suggests that the individuals, as time goes on through either psychological and or pharmacological intervention, the cortisol response is starting to come back to a conventional level. Still quite far away from the individuals who have no history, but that suggests to us we should be able to intervene in a way which can help these individuals. And that is really very promising. And that's where our research program is moving on to now. And we can talk about it later on that not just in terms of the context mm. of suicide, how do we help people cope better with stress? So what I've been trying to do is suggest, look, there is the idea is that stress and cortisol clearly have a role to play here. A small role because suicidal behavior is a complex, multifactorial um, outcome of, of a result of catastrophic events in people's lives, but many different factors help explain it. This is maybe not another piece in a very complex jigsaw puzzle. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, it, does. Yeah. it answers it really well. And I think again, yeah, it's important. I can imagine myself two years ago being quite stressed, listening to all this at this point, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about some of the mechanisms mm. about how sure. you can kind of rewire yourself because I found some tools really helpful. I know you have in the past mm. TV. And, yeah. Um, yeah. It's definitely important for our listeners, but just, to go back to that previous point, that actually made me think of how a lot of people who have, um, you know, suicidal ideations or severe depression actually say they feel numb to everything. So there is actually a real biological, physical reason to, they've probably worn down their systems to a mm. state where they know they're not reacting. You know, people might have a major life event like a, um, in a play I wrote about depression, it's uh, someone loses their mother and then they said they felt nothing when, you know, they, they know that they should feel something. And then that made them hate themselves even more. So that kind of wearing out that response is actually quite a common, you know, physical, you know, kind of symptom yeah, yeah. of depression, isn't it? I think for a lot of people. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, I, you're absolutely right. You use the words wearing out the system is entirely how I see it as well. 
and in some ways the we just somehow been able to measure that biological response but you're absolutely right the psychological response would also be this idea that it's there's a very famous study in psychology to do with learned helplessness the idea of exposure over a period of time to uncontrollable events means that you stop really responding and that's in effect what we're talking about here and um but as I say, the promising thing is we might be able to intervene. Yeah, but you're right. I'm yeah. so glad. I'm so glad he saw, he said that and brought that up because, um, as Chris has said about his history and um, you know, I, I'm having a tough time with, with with different things back in my life uh, a few years ago, um, but it's so good to hear that it can regenerate. That mm. nature can that can regenerate and and adapt again. I guess mm. is um, is brilliant to know. And uh, as Chris said, it, it kind of does paint a picture early for why people might feel like that. So I hope that people can hear that and, and, and understand and maybe kind of maybe put their hand up and say, this could be happening or there is a reason for why, you know, that, that they might be feeling like that. So knowledge can be the, the first the step, can't it? For exactly. Some people. I think sometimes <clears throat> people think that the way they feel is a permanent state, yeah. which mm -hmm. it isn't. I mean, mm -hmm. I know for myself, my body and mind are completely different to how they were two, mm -hmm. three years ago. Yeah. Completely different. But when I was in that storm, I never thought it would pass. But mm -hmm. these states aren't permanent. Even if you believe and you tell yourself it is, you know, you've got to have that little glimmer of hope that actually yeah. if I do the right things, six months down the line, I feel certain percent better. And then a year and so and so. Again, like physical going to the gym. You yeah. don't go to, I think I mentioned it before, but you don't go to the gym once and come out and you've got six pack muscles, mm -hmm. but you keep going, you know, and you start to notice the differences. I think it's the same with kind of. You've got to undertake that kind of discipline, which would be hard. It would be hard in, in that state mm -hmm. and in and, and that case and scenario, but you have to undertake that discipline to to almost have the faith in the action that it's uh, it will get better. And, and there's many different things that mm -hmm. I think we could tap into now Daryl actually that, that people could do and and look into as well if, if if we could do sure yeah but even before we move on to that I mean one variable which I think it's really important to mention particularly in a male related podcast is it um is self-esteem so mm. self-esteem is a variable even myself as a younger individual never took seriously I thought self-esteem this is a thing we talk about really yeah. and we talk about as a kid and and but actually what's amazing to me is that self-esteem is the key to so much success and how we cope with many things in our lives. Because um, most people don't quite realize how fragile or don't really give any serious consideration to how fragile self-esteem is. So our self-esteem changes on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. And often people who've been exposed to lots of really uh, not even majorly stressful events, could be small stressful events, large ones, but their self-esteem then tracks along at the same time. And, and that is so damaging. But men in particular never really think or talk about their self-esteem or how it makes them feel. But actually, if you drill down, you'll start, start finding that self-esteem is really important and, the, and it's those changes. So, and it, it's about trying to do what things can you do to start restoring your self-esteem. So whenever, you know, Chris, you're talking about, you know, when you're having a tough time, one of the things that would have been pretty damaged then as well, for all of us, I'm the same and mm. my self-esteem fluctuates a lot as, as with most men, um, is your self-esteem's low. And then you have to engage in behaviours to start building it up. And that's something we shouldn't lose sight of. And it is, it's about the repetitive nature of what, the things we can do. You know, mentioned exercise. Exercise is one 
well, in fact, exercise is probably the single most important thing we can do for our well-being, I would argue. Um, there's lots of, we can talk about those, these clever tools we can also use, but exercise in the background is extraordinary. I don't know if you've seen that, that YouTube, is it called 24 and a half hours? It might be called. And it's this US physician who's able to, it's a very inspiring uh, clip where, or video where he shows that physical exercise is linked to virtually everything that we're interested in, in well-being from reducing Alzheimer's risks right through to, you know, combating against depression right through to living longer. So it's worth looking at, listeners, if you Google it, I, I think that might be what it is called. We can send it out after as yeah. well and attach it to the show notes and stuff. Sure, so, sure. Yeah, but yeah. It's a really interesting one. But yeah, so coming back to um, what we can do and what can, what can intervene. So um, there's many different aspects. There's many different things we can do. Um, but you've, I think, uh, Steve, you've just mentioned the first one, which is being aware. So I've, mm. in fact, it's worth, there's a podcast you might want to link, which is mm. a podcast I wrote um, last November for Stress Awareness Day, um, uh, which is an annual event, which I think is an important event because what we haven't said at the beginning of this podcast is that in the, in the UK alone, um, nearly half a million individuals um, every year are off work or, or report themselves ill, depressed or anxious as a result of work-related stress. You know, millions upon millions of working days are lost in the UK every year. Stress is the single um, cause of long-term sickness in the workplace. Um, but many people are not aware of a, the symptoms of stress or the um, or what that they're being, what the causes of stress are. So I'm a big fan of this idea of being stress aware, being reflecting on what are the what things are causing you to feel down or anxious or making you to ruminate or to worry. And so I think most people can give some thought to that and being aware of the fact that, and this is the biggest concern in my mind, that people aren't aware that these stressful events trigger biological changes, but also change how you behave. Um, and that's something which, and, and I mean, particularly health behaviors, but also if you start feeling you're being very irritable at home or you're starting to be very distractible, um, you know, short anger, ang angry outbursts, um, starting to feel flat, starting to feel, you know, you wake up in the morning, you don't want to go to work. Those sorts of factors are not even early signs, but they're very clear signs of, um, of stress might be starting to creep into your everyday life. And my feeling is that's when you need to stop and appraise the situation and say, well, what can I do here? Something is not going right. The idea, and, and the thing is, we often talk about work stress or being stressed at work. People have no understanding, unless you're in that situation, what it really means to be experiencing that. And that's that extreme where, you know, you're not wanting to go to work in the morning. You've got that sick feeling in your stomach. You've got that really penetrating, intrusive thoughts about workplace and your worry. That's, that's what work-related stress is. That's what leads to depression, anxiety. That's the early signs of risk of, of maybe suicide, risks of, of um, risks to your health and well-being. There's a lot, mate, there's a lot in talking around the subject that, that I'd, I'd like to bring up and uh, I'll try to bring it up and then follow up with a question on it. Um, I, I definitely think that there's, there's an attitude that, that, that needs to be taken on where we're aware of stress and aware of it in our workplace, in our environment, what we do. 
So I'm a rugby league player and um, I know that when I'm fit and when I'm playing, I'm in fight or flight a lot of the time. So it's not just a Friday night where, I, you know, we, we kick off at 8pm and I'm taking all the different bits of pre-workout, um, energising gels, taking all the adrenaline in from the crowd and all that sort of stuff, finishing up at 10, half 10. Um, then I've got to go to bed. I've got to somehow go to sleep um, and, and, and and find a good good sleep to recover, to, to start all again, to have a bit of a recovery session on the Saturday and then on the Monday, start the whole training process again where we'll probably do a bit of contact on the Monday and stuff again. So obviously I, I wonder if that's acute in a sort of way because we're having to deal with with big men running at us and have to put them down and all the rough and tumble and that sort of stuff. So I think being aware of that is a kind of learned process that, that you have to do. Um, in my life, I've had to learn to kind of identify when I'm in fight or flight. Because I, 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 I think back to a few years ago, I'd always be in fight or flight and I'd be knackered from it, be really tired from it. I'd be um, like exhausted over the weekend and then Monday I'd be training back in it again. Day off just about getting down from it and coming down from it. And I think that's probably got better and that's probably learned. That's probably learned over the years and, and kind of dealing with it. Um, but there is also that in there a bit of an attitude towards working with that stress and kind of knowing that it's going to be there. And I do understand that once it gets over, I've been there before, once it gets over the... Uh, the resources to deal with it, then that's when you probably need to kind of look at what, what's going on. What, you know, if you need a break, if you need to kind of really work into it. So, um, that's a, that's a really big relationship, um, with stress that I have and I'm kind of aware of it. And, and I think that a lot of people will find it tough to sleep after, after big exerting things. But I, I wanted to ask you about that. What, you know, for, as a, as a rugby league player or some, an athlete that might be listening, what what would you recommend or or how would you look at the relationship between resting, coming back down into into um the the rest and digest rather than fight or flight? Because I'm in a lot a lot of fight or flight. I'm injured at the minute. So I think I'm probably in rest and digest a lot. Um so that's quite a lot. That's quite I guess that's quite an aware situation that I have, but I do think it's really important. I, I and I and I'm one to, as Chris has said, um in the past, I've ruminated, I've overthought mm -hmm. stuff, um, which takes that energy out of another player who might get do something done, do something, and then kind of sit back and relax and wait for the next time without, you know, and I'm, I'm always thinking about it. I'm, I wanted to get better and all that sort of stuff. So there's a bit of a crossover there. Mm. Um, any comments, any thoughts that you have on that? You're, you're raising a number of really interesting yeah. points there, Stevie. I mean, the... Well, the first thing we should say then just is that you're absolutely right about you saying you try and enjoy that stress when you need to and you take mm. from it. And I mean, uh, we mentioned this off air. Um, there is this view that um, there's a certain optimal level of stress, which is good for you. And that will yeah. be different for you as an elite athlete compared to myself as a non-elite athlete, um, <laughs> where uh, and by far uh, away from being an elite far athlete <laughs> ever, ever in my life. But anyway, um, I, know what, I can run pretty well. Um, but is this thing called eustress. And eustress is where the body will respond in, an, in, a, in a really optimal way at a particular level of stress. But whenever that gets too much, that's when it becomes problematic. And that's when we start talking about stress being damaging. But that's just an aside. So picking up on the point, what can you do to try and intervene and switch off? Mm. So there's a number of things come to mind. Um, 
One is you're right. So, you know, in any situation, if it, it could be you in terms of what happened in that game and you're thinking, oh, you're concerned and you're, you're you know, how you've performed. And so let's draw two differences. One is worry and one is rumination. So rumination is this thing about you. You're repetitive thinking about events that happened in the past. And worry is this fear for the future, which is repetitive, where you're, you're, you're thoughts coming in about worrying about the future. So, and both of those are part of this variable called perseverative cognition, which arguably is this link between stressful encounters in your real life, could be sporting encounters, could be work encounters, could be minor encounters, which can be damaging for your well-being and health. So one thing I tell people often is to engage in these things called, or this strategy called worry postponement. And it's really a very simple construct and our concept, but it works pretty well. So this idea is so when you being aware, you find yourself worrying. So what you do is and if you start engaging with worry postponement, I use it, my colleagues use it, is you say to yourself, right, today when I recognize I'm worrying, I stop worrying and I will worry tonight at a particular time. So say you might go, I'm going to worry at seven o'clock tonight for 15 minutes. And that's what you do. So every time you start this worry creeping in, you switch it off and you stop in your head. And then at seven o'clock, that's when you spend the time worrying about the event. And you think, well, what can I do? So you can engage in the, allow yourself to worry, which means you're time limiting it. So you're switching on that stress response because you're going to, that will probably activate arousal. And then you deal with it and you switch it off. And that's been shown to be really effective in many different um, ways. So I always use that. That's a good example of something in your psychological toolbox. So worry postponement will work for lots of people. The other thing is relaxation and mindfulness. So, you know, mindfulness is this really incredibly pervasive construct. It's everywhere, everywhere. People are talking about it. There's an amazingly good apps. Headspace is an excellent mind space or a mindfulness app. And I actually earlier used to be quite skeptical of mindfulness. Um, but actually the evidence is gathering pretty impressively for mindfulness, particularly on the psychological outcomes, but also on physiological outcomes. There's evidence showing how changes in brain function, as well as which would be linked to downregulation of the stress response. Um, so my feeling is, is be aware that these, these thought processes are there and they're likely been having a negative impact on your well-being. And think about techniques such as mindfulness, worry postponement. And the other one that we've been using a lot of in many different areas is there's this idea of planning better. So in psychological terms, it's called using implementation intentions, right? So what we have is we all, it, it could be whenever you feel yourself worrying or feeling stressed, so a lot of people might overeat, for example. They might be more likely to uh, in, ingest high-fat energy-dense foods. In fact, we've published many papers showing that's the case, which can lead to increases in central adiposity and, and obesity and other risks. Because um, if you imagine every time you felt stressed, you ate half a Mars bar or any other type of bar that's just your favorite chocolate, that is, over time, that can be pretty damaging for your weight and, and other well-being related issues. Similarly, if you, after a game, and you're the sort of person who does worry or ruminate about it, you can form these plans, these implementation intentions. And they're as simple as writing down a plan, which is, when I feel stressed or when I worry about um, my performance in the game, I will think about something else or I will meditate instead or I will engage in mindfulness or I will exercise. 
So the idea of it is by simply forming this plan, it sounds so simplistic, but there's lots of very impressive data which show that this increases what's called automaticity of the event. The idea that when you encounter that trigger in your environment, you're more likely to engage in it. Because what we know is that we, we all make great plans for it could be to go to the gym, but things get in the way. It's called the intention behavior gap. But the idea of you forming these plans, it's really simple, but it increases likelihood of you actually enacting the plan. So you can use that as well to cope with stress. So that's what our recent studies have been looking at. You get people to do that and they're more likely to not eat unhealthily. They're more likely to have a banana or to do something completely different. And I think we can apply that to all those processes that we're talking about. So, you know, I'm a big fan of, as I say, worry postponement, big fan of mindfulness and meditation, big fan of using exercise to help cope with stress. So we've shown previously the conscientious people, the people who live longer. So I've shown in a paper a number of years ago, on days individuals high in conscientiousness encounter stressors, they're also more likely to exercise. So this is the idea they use exercise as a coping mechanism. So there's a range of things there, uh, Stevie, that one can engage in. Um, to help people cope better with stress. Um, but also, you know, if you look at, there's a blog I wrote recently say about um, are you stress aware? And I finished that blog with 10, I'm going to say top tips. I don't know what to make some top tips. I've written them, so maybe I think they're top, but, yeah. but they're simple things that we can all engage in. Mm. You know, simple things about switching off your email, switching off social media. I mean, Stevie, do you engage with social media? I do, yeah, but uh, over time I've come to a, a sort of agreement with myself um, for how much I'll use it. So instead of having all the apps on my phone, I deleted most of the apps. I just have Inst Instagram there just to to allow myself to kind of get lost in every now and then. But I do find that that, that was something that was triggering it. And, and kind of, I used to get in a zone when I used to be on it. I used to go in between them on scroll and stuff. And I used to sit there, I'd be home on my own, I'd be like, what am I doing? I'd be literally like, what am I doing? This is not any better, but you kind of get lost in it. So I took away that. Um, that habit almost that kind of um, accessibility to the habit and then um, I've changed I've changed that habit around mm -hmm. it absolutely yeah. I mean that's a really important thing to do I mean again if we come back these you know as men we're less likely to be as um, intra-psychic for want of a better term we do think about these processes that might be influencing us and mm -hmm. how we feel but you know the social media thing particularly if you're uh, in the sporting arena you know, after a game, you know, there could be a lot of uh, very negative yeah. feedback or not. could be very positive feedback as well. But the point is that can also um, keep those stress response systems switched on. Yeah. What about you, Chris? Have you used any of these techniques to over the years to try and cope differently with stress? Or Yeah, I mean, for me, the ones which jump out for me were breathing techniques were quite simple. Um Box breathing was one of the techniques we did yeah. in the mentality retreat. Yeah. And I remember before my driving lesson, I did just half an hour of box breathing. So it's just five seconds in, hold five seconds, five seconds out, hold five seconds. Did that for 15 minutes, half an hour. Me and Don were recently on a Channel 4 cooking show. And every morning we did that because <laughs> we were quite stressed. It's not been aired yet, so this could still happen. But we're worried we're going to be like national memes or something <laughs> like that. So we get daughter us like, we could be, you know, laughing stocks yeah. here. And we still could be. Um, <laughs> too relaxed. Yeah. Too relaxed. Yeah. But just doing those breathing techniques, I felt like it almost was like my body was in a state where it couldn't get really anxious because I'd, I think in the box breathing, you end up doing something like, just three, four breaths a minute because they're really long controlled breaths. And I did for my driving lesson, I felt like I was kind of 
much more in flow state, much more calm. So that helped me massively. And if mm. I have stressful situations coming up, like giving a talk or anything, I will use that as one of my tools as a precursor to, to doing the event. The other one for me, which I've mentioned loads on the pod, I, I almost get, I almost don't want to mention it all the time, but meditation was an, was an absolute game changer for me. And I, I come at it from, a, I'm much more rational about things. So when I first, when meditation was first floated to me, I kind of thought it was the same as putting crystals in your room. You know, I didn't think there was any scientific basis to, to these sort of things, but um, I read Sam Harris's book on it. I read some of the like peer reviewed scientific journals that have come out around it. And there were some good studies about prisoners and, and how it actually has changed the shape of people's brains and how your amygdala can actually shrink in size and loads of these things that I was told my amygdala was overactive. Um, mm. So then I made sure I did a silent retreat. I made sure I had a regular habit of meditation, not in the sense that if I didn't do it, I'd beat myself up. I was like, look, if I do it four times a week, even if I'm aiming at seven, that's still better than no times a week. Yeah. Um, and the more I did these things, the more I noticed things that used to get me super stressed. And that I thought always would, didn't anymore. But yeah. it did take a while. Um, and the other thing, I, I, cold showers actually were quite a big thing for me. Because yeah. I used to have that feeling of waking up in the morning and feeling a bit numb and no energy and not wanting to do things. And then I saw Wim Hof's documentary. And as much as it was horrible the first time, and it doesn't ever really get nice, but <laughs> having a cold shower used to really kind of wake me up and start me feeling again. Um, so that was another big one for me, I think. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I remember the point where it was kind of acute and the first real step was actually being aware that, okay, I'm actually in this body, which, and all of us have these bodies, which are actually, because we've progressed and society has come on and we've taken away a lot, lot of external threats. We have this tool that's our body that isn't really designed for the world we're in and it will self-sabotage. Mm. You can make goals like I want to lose two stone this year but then you're a bit tired and someone offers you chocolate cake and you know it's not the right decision. But in that moment, that impulse is quite big. In the now. But as soon as you yeah. recognise that, that that relationship is there, it's much easier to kind of combat that and create tools. But yeah, like you said, actually saying, okay, I, I did the worry thing. I'm going to worry about that tonight and I'd write it down and then I'd write down a response to the worry. And it really does work over time if you do mm. these things. Yeah. But one, one thing I wanted to jump in on quickly um, was I think there's a misconception sometimes that ruminating over things obsessively can lead to high performance in the sporting field. So I think some people are, oh, you have to be obsessed, which I think is actually not the case at all. I think there's a far better route that you've kind of mentioned where if you think, okay, say you made a mistake in a game. Mm. If you think about that a hundred times, you might think, oh, that's why I don't make that mistake in a game. But if you thought about it once and wrote it down and yeah. thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do next time. You've stopped yourself so much self-torture and, yeah, agoni and for agony. Sure, for sure. There's, um, a, there's a definite, definite um, crossover in that. Um, so as a, young, as a young kid, I remember I'd used to maybe only score one try a game and I'd, you know, maybe miss a couple of tackles and the team would lose. And I'd be in the car home, just like thinking about the game, thinking about what my actions, and this is as a young lad. Um, so obviously that's kind of picked up since I've been young, whether it's genetic or, or whatnot, but it's been picked up since I've been young. And it's kind of, whether that's even catapulted me or helped me at all, I'm not so sure, but it's obviously something that, that kind of a lot of players do and a lot of players I know now, when you play at 8pm on a night and it's a tough game and it's, and it's like, say we've got beat by a drop goal, 
that kind of clinical one point that you got beat by can can make you go home and you can be in bed and you can actually literally be up till you know you'll have to distract yourself can you put it down sometimes so actually if i just made that tackle 10 seconds or t- two plays earlier that wouldn't have you know the oh, little things mate, where every, every player is probably so blaming himself for one yeah. event and and that's a lot of it a lot of it and and it, I feel like a lot of players will blame themselves. I know I, I you know, I, I will be honest with my performance and anything that, you know, that, that I've done wrong, I, I will analyse. And, and it's almost like it, it can happen the next day as well. And you, you're distracted so much from what you're doing. It's running through your head and it's like almost like you have slight interruptions in the day from what's running, what's replaying in your head. Mm. So that's quite, quite, you know, that's quite a, an example where, You've lost and you're ruminating so much over it. But what I've really helped and and pick up picked up um, to and I, I think this is worth sharing is um, I think it's a bit of a CBT method. I'm not sure, um, but it's Alan Johnson told me about it. Um, it's evidential thinking, and that's basically taking out this complex thought or um, analytical thing that you've got going in your head and kind of breaking it down and and giving yourself that onus. Or allowing yourself to to actually break the thought down and go through, you know, why you know, kind of the, the the breakdown is to to understand why it's helpful to think of it, why it's not yeah. helpful for, to think of it, what what evidence is there behind thinking of it, and why is it not evidence behind thinking it, and then and then you kind of you rate it at the start of the process, and after the process you rate it again, and then you almost make a cut to stop thinking about it. And it obviously um, is useful if you have made a mistake to think about it once. For think, sure. This is what I need to work on to not make that mistake. For sure. But this process, it, at the end of it, it says you make a plan about yeah. what you're going to yeah, do about absolutely. it. Absolutely. I mean, um, so that, I mean, it's interesting. So one thing we haven't touched upon is that there's good rumination and there's bad rumination, right? Mm. So rumination is an umbrella term and it should be, there's two components. One is brooding. And brooding is the bad bit, the mm. maladaptive bit where you, that's stuff that gets into your head and you feel really bad. That's the stuff that keeps you awake at night. Yeah. But the other side is what's called reflection. And reflection is also a type of rumination, but it's, it kind of reflects the sort of stuff that you've just mentioned there, Stevie. So the idea that you, it's okay to reflect on the mistake if you're trying to do it in a way you think, what will I do next time to ensure that doesn't happen again? Mm. As opposed to beating yourself up about it, which is the, the brooding component. So I think they're really, that's an important distinction. I think that approach that you've described sounds very helpful in any, because mm. the CBT type-based approach gets you to rethink your, well, it gets you to reappraise your thought processes, yeah. which are often erroneous or um, just completely wrong. And you need to challenge those. But the other thing I suppose that we, um, I think would be important just to think about is that, and I'm struck by some of the things you said, Chris, earlier, but you know what we do as human beings is, we try and self-regulate, right? And it's about self-regulating well and all these things. And men, maybe, I don't know if we're better or not at this, and I certainly wouldn't like to suggest there's a huge difference, but we all are, have these challenges of how we self-regulate. But the one thing that um, I just would, another kind of strategy to help us self-regulate, so we talk about exercise, a good one. I mean, a simple one I use a lot to try and cope with all, you know, a pretty crazy and a hectic schedule is I'm a list maker, right? But this has impacts on my self-esteem. So list making, right, is a really simple intervention. And I don't know who in the room list makes, but I, I make a list and it has to be at least 10 a day. I used to call it 10 a day. So every single day, and I've got a large, you know, list book and I've done it for years upon years. And it is crossing off that list. Other people use it in apps and 
But interestingly, there's a really, a really quite impressive study recently showed that people who make lists before they go to bed at night ruminate less mm. because they feel in control yeah. of their lives. But I also think the reason why I make lists and strike them off, and these, and I include everything in that list. So I'm a keen runner, so I run only short, short distances, but I, I, I run many, many years. I want to run into my old age, so I don't want to run long distances where I become damaged. So I just do 5K about three or four times a week. But the 5K is part of my daily list, even though, you know, it could be work-related, but it's also making... So I think making lists are important, and that also impacts on my self-esteem, which also means that I'm feeling of achieving stuff, which mm. also wards, wards away those demons that we all have. And I always think the, the list-making... As well as everything else, the other tools are talked about help you self-regulate better. And that's what we should all be striving for um, is, you know, thinking what tools do we need to self-regulate better to protect ourselves against the stressful events and the, the modern life that we live in. We all juggle lots of different things. But one that I didn't mention, which I think is worth flagging, is I think, Chris, you talked, talked about a little bit earlier, is about writing. So there's a whole literature, uh, the scientific literature on what's called written emotional disclosure. And written emotional disclosure is a really um, impressive um, area. It's been around since the early 80s. And, and the early studies show that individuals who write about, say if I said to you guys, okay, write for 15 minutes now for the next three consecutive days, just for 15 minutes a day, write about the most traumatic event of your life. Just do it privately. Don't worry about language. Don't look about flow. Just let go. And the first studies in that area showed that people who would write about these, the most traumatic event of their life, they did it in students initially. They followed them up, a group them would write about non-stressful events or non-traumatic events. And those who had written about the trauma over the next year were significantly less likely to go and see their physician in the US. They were less likely to seek help for medical reasons. There's other studies showed that um, individual that influences immune responses. It, you know, there's a classic study um, conducted by uh, this guy Keith Petrie and colleagues, um, which showed that in New Zealand, you exposed medical students to a hepatitis uh, B vaccination, I think it was, and then looked at the antibody response. And they were able to show that those who wrote about trauma beforehand compared to controls, a month later, their immune response was improved. But there's lots of reasons why that might be helpful. But there's a really great example, which is relevant to some listeners who will be um, about to embark upon exams recently. So lots of people doing exams, A-levels, degrees, GCSEs, whatever. So there's a study published in Science, and Science is the premier journal which publishes scientific research. And they showed that you got students to write about, it was maths exams, they'd write about their worrying concerns about the maths exams for five or ten minutes before the exam and compared them with controls. And those who'd written about the worry about the exams they perform better afterwards. So they had a couple of grade point average increases, which I think is really impressive. That's amazing, yeah. yeah. And there's lots of evidence showing that, you know, there's different mechanisms. So, you know, the idea that it, one could be cathartic, the idea of writing about past traumatic events just helps you, you feel better because you let it, you're letting it out. People argue that you um, are exposing yourself to the trauma, so exposure is good. And these don't have to be big traumas. They can be things that you find very mm. stressful. But one of the reasons might be it frees up resources, psychological and physiological resources for you to cope better with other stuff. Because you've got it down and got it out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I just want to flag that because, again, it's another easy thing we can all do. Yeah. You know, it is about, you know, it's, you know, it's self-therapy in some ways where you are really, you know, you could do that. You could spend time doing it. And I know lots of people who engage in that. So it touches upon the meditation yeah, stuff. Yeah. 
but it's about being honest. It's about um, really accepting and engaging with what you, something which previously has concerned you. And that has yielded lots of really impressive benefits. Well, you did that in a way, didn't you? With um, I remember talking to Chris. Chris wrote Life and Soul, and Chris can maybe touch a little bit on that, but I think you probably did more than 15 minutes a night, didn't you, on that? Um, yeah. With some of your experiences and turned it into, I mean, some could call it art, couldn't they? A little bit, bit of a well, play. I think, you know, touring around top a couple of countries probably qualifies <laughs> as art. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, Chris, <laughs> you obviously you had that. And I think I, I can relate to that, to writing. It's really helped me. And um, a few articles that I've put out on mentality, um, that's out there for people to see. And, it, you know, hopefully it helps people. But I guess in a way, getting that out there and, and what I was feeling and, and kind of putting it down and and seeing it, you know, kind of helped a lot as well. Um and I just want to kind of get this angle across, I think, um, because we're having an amazing conversation this, um, and, and I'm, I'm so sure that all of this is going to help guys mm. like massively to, to better navigate the way. And um, I do think we should mention that don't be scared of stress though. Is that, is that, is that fair to say? Don't be scared of, of, of stress and scared of the, the hard things. I think we, we, we are doing everything we can here to really help guys approach the stressful yeah. situations because it's better. natural yeah it? it's natural as we said it's a natural response in, in the body and in the human body and um, that's what I think that's what we're all for sat here really yeah it's, to like, give... it's like aiming at I think we touched on it at the start but mm. I want a realistic stress response to scenarios in life yeah you know if if there is a wildebeest that walks into my house I don't want to be calm and relaxed as it <laughs> yeah. charges at me yeah, yeah, I do want to fight you need or flight. that stress response, yeah. yeah. But I think even just mentioning there, the obviously the rumination that I'll have after games, I think that will still be there. That'll still be there to a degree, but I'm not saying that I'm switching that off. I'm saying that it's probably better to have tools, things that can help, as you've have you just mentioned there, Daryl, a whole host of different things that can help people to actually handle it better or allow yourself to, to approach it better. Um, and just being more aware, as you said, that blog post, being stress aware is, is a massive, massive thing. Uh, we'll tweet uh, that out as well, that mm, post. Yeah, that'd be good. I mean, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you've just, the key word that none of us have said yet, but we've all intimated it, is acceptance, right? Yeah. So, um, and particularly from a male point of view, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. So there's a, a large movement in, in some of the psychotherapies. There's this thing called acceptance uh, commitment therapy. And one of the key things is, is accepting the fact that lives are stressful. And letting that happen to you sometimes, but also have tools to try and make sure it doesn't go too far. So I think that's entirely important, you know, and as soon as we start realizing that, you also probably hopefully will cope better. But the one thing I suppose, um, and it's so simple, and the, the emotional disclosure um, work speaks to this, it is good to talk and it is good to share and it is okay to recognize that you're stressed. And again, from the, the angle of this particular um, podcast is that men historically are less likely to do those things. They're less likely to share, they're less likely to talk, and they're certainly less likely to recognize when there might be a failing or tell their friends or colleagues. I've got an identical twin who's um, also a professor of psychology and he and I work a lot on all the suicide work is with my twin. And, and um, you know, in fact, he called me last night as walking home from the university and a certain thing had happened to him at work and he wanted to discuss that with me. So he was, you know, he said, sorry, I'm just ringing to vent. So the point was, you know, he and I try and self-regulate together. You know, we try and we support each other. And, but talking 
is so, so important. You know, keeping these things, not either writing it down is one way from people, but sharing it with your friends, being open. And, you know, there's lots of, we all know in this room that, you know, society and the way we look at mental health is changing radically now, which is extraordinary. The idea that we've taken this long to at least get close to having parity of esteem for mental health as well as physical health is is actually a national, you know, it's it's a catastrophe. The idea we've taken so long is crazy. You know, given all the figures we know, I mean, we talk about the suicide data, you know, every 40 seconds, someone somewhere in the world ends their life. Every 40 seconds. The time we finish this podcast, someone else in the UK or Ireland will have ended their life. 1.5% of world mortality is to do with suicidal behaviour. I find those statistics frightening and extraordinary in equal measure. So we are catching up and a lot of it is the male focus, you know, in terms of in, in this podcast, you know, so we open up, use the tools, but also accept that tough things happen. So, you know, I completely agree with, I think we're all on the same sheet there, but, you know, this is why, you know, the, the focus of this whole approach, the mentality is really impressive, I think, because each, each of these new introductions into the social world will change at least one or two male minds um, to be more open, to seek help, to think about how I might use a mindful app and med meditation, write, you know, a plan or list how I can self-regulate better. So it is about navigating, um, but also, you know, in this context is reaching out to men as well. Can I float one idea just off the back of some of the things we mentioned previously? I remember on the meditation retreat I did, they talked a lot about, um, and I think it, you were saying when people write down traumatic events, it actually, you know, improves their, well, their physical performance and the way their body reacts to things. And one of the things in, on the retreat, because you have to disclose your mental health history. So I did, and they called me at the start and said, you might find some of this quite tough because the technique we're going to use is, you know, you basically, because you're focusing on an area of the body or a breath or going through the body and, and feeling, the, the, the Buddhist theory behind it all, and, you know, I'm not a Buddhist, but I think a lot of the teachings are actually quite rational. I think acceptance commitment therapy takes quite a lot of it from the Buddhist tradition. But one of the uh, things that they mentioned was that the, every thought you have has a, f well, thoughts can have a physical response. So when a traumatic thought comes up, your body actually reacts physically to it. Um, so they said, when you leave your mind to just focus on something, stuff will bubble up to the surface and stored thoughts are usually things which have a strong physical response, either craving something pleasurable, but most likely it's trying to negative things will come up and loads. I could think of basically my life of trauma bubbled up at some point while I was on this retreat. And, you know, there are bits where you really feel the physical response, but the teaching was you carry on going back to whatever you're meant to be focusing on at the time. And it will teach your body to not store that thought because you're teaching your body that it's not. And it did actually make kind of rational sense to me that if stuff, because normally in everyday life, when these things come up and we've got the world's best distraction tool in our pocket now, mm. it's like, oh, I'm going to go do something else or I'm going to go to the pub or I'm going to go on Instagram or I'm going to just do something else to push it away. Mm. But this was, you had nothing else to do. So you had to let it bubble up and sit with it. Um, and I guess it, it links into the exposure stuff you were saying. Um, but does that kind of make sense from, from your understanding? That's exactly, of that's um, really interesting actually hearing it articulated in that way. Um, so yeah, so, so one of the early theories linked to the written emotional disclosure work was 
very much reflects those sort of um, processes. The idea is that extinction's been a key one. So the idea that you write, you may have suppressed something, uh, you know, a traumatic event, uh, and then through the writing, you're allowing it to come back up into the fore. And uh, as a result of then writing about it, it means that you're exposing yourself to those aspects of arousal, which your body's responding to, and the thoughts and the arousal are linked together. But by writing about it, then you're you're experiencing it. And then as a result of experiencing and experiencing it, the arousal will then dissipate and leads to extinction. So that's one of the theories, and that's entirely what you're talking mm. about, I think, Chris, there. So you're absolutely right. So that's why it's it's okay sometimes not to be afraid. And it is what this is why therapy works, of course, as well. I mean, there's you know, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but uh, my clinical psychology th- colleagues would have multiple theories on why these things work. Personally, I am a fan of exposure therapy, I think, in the context of trauma. Um, and also there's lots of pretty robust evidence in terms of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, that those sort of exposure techniques can yield benefits. And OCD as well. I remember one of mine used to be, I'd have to check the gas was off of the door maybe three, four times. And my therapist like, just sit with the anxiety. Yeah. You know, I'll pay for your house if it burns down. So just sit with the anxiety. So yes. I promise. And she said, did you yeah. ever, was it ever locked? I said, well, was it ever unlocked? I was like, no, it actually has never been unlocked. He goes, well, if your house gets robbed, I'll pay for it. So just sit with the anxiety. And then when I did that more and more, you actually, you take the power of that thought away. Absolutely. And it's challenging the thoughts. I mean, that's why, you know, very good therapists are excellent um, CBT uh, clinicians. And and the idea of getting you to think differently about those erroneous thoughts, you know, that's a good example where you thought, you know, the question was, was it ever an issue yeah. when you realised, no, it wasn't? Gets you to challenge that. Um, but, you know, don't forget, you know, this is all about stress. You know, the reason why we experience stress is how we appraise events. And if we, you know, the idea, these are psychological constructs. Appraisal is how we evaluate something in terms of threat, challenge, loss, the resources we have. And it doesn't matter if it's a thought linked to, in your case, OCD or if it was linked to um, a depressive thought. But the idea is if we've got lots of techniques to challenge those thoughts. And as soon as you challenge them, you often realise they're, they're erroneous. Is that scary? Is that scary for someone to do, to challenge them and, 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 and stop distracting themselves, do you think? It might be. It might yeah, be for some. Yeah, but, you it know, was for me. Yeah, it, it will certainly yeah. be. Certainly in that context, you yeah, know, it yeah. would be very mm-hmm. scary. And you're right, the biological response will be activated as well. But... You know, it's that thing where you do need to confront sometimes mm-hmm. in order to yield the benefit. And often, even if you come back to the writing disclosure um, work, what you often find in that work is that, um, and I should make it very clear, that particular intervention, like many interventions, works for some people some of the time. So the idea is that you need to find what works for you. But coming back to your example, Chris, and I think this completely um, is, is clear in the literature most of these sort of approach interventions, you get people to write about something in terms of traumatic events, you find a short-term increase in the negative stuff. So you might have a lot of negative affect and, and feeling anxious immediately after the event. And the benefit then yields much later. Yeah, so definitely. that's the case. So you need that short-term activation for the long-term gain. Yeah, so actually that's a nice way of thinking about it. You've got to expect that it's going to be quite tough for a bit, mm. but you're doing it for a goal that means eventually you're going to decrease that response yeah absolutely absolutely yeah yeah i um i just picked on something you said there daryl um you said to confront it and um it, it keeps coming back to, to what we said and dom's there typing away listening uh, on his uh, macbook writing notes down but i remember what dom said a few weeks ago and um 
I kind of we, we're kind of trying to think of what best way to get it. Um, best way to get mentality across to someone um, who we're going to speak to. Um, and Don mentioned it's basically challenging your mental health um, to, to in essence, better navigate how you, how, how you, um, how, better how you navigate the world. Mm. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a massive thing. We, we, we can't, I don't think, we can't, definitely can't get rid of stress. We definitely can't get rid of depression and we definitely can't control the world for, for how it works to, to aid our comfort and, and, and keeping that stay. And, and I think we've mentioned many times that it's not about being in comfort all the time. You need to step out and, and be in discomfort. And um, I think it is definitely, it definitely kind of relates to the fact that you should kind of hone that ability to keep challenging your mental health, to keep picking up those tools and to keep kind of progressing in that, in that state, because it's so easy to go to the gym and, um, go and look at the, the dumbbell rack and, and, and do some bench press and walk around because everyone's doing it. But I think this is, is what you're saying. It's been a bit of a catastrophe of the fact that it's taken this long to, mm. to kind of draw a level playing field for physical and mental health. So I hope this is what we're doing. I hope this is this conversation is what we're doing is is, is telling people it's all right to look at stress, to mm. kind of get out of that, that headspace and, and, and get away from the momentum to, in order to better themselves and, and to better manage their mental health as well as physical health. If that makes sense. Um, I think it's really helpful, Chris, what, what you were saying there as well about confronting that, that thought. I imagine that were um, a very scary thought too, mate. Um, no, but I mean, that's entirely right. Uh, Stevie, I mean, I think, and I think you, you know, I, you know, I, I congratulate both of you, all three of you here. I mean, in terms of, you know, the, I love the title of this podcast because it really, it emphasizes, you know, there's a male angle here as well mm. as um, everyone else. Mm. And although this, you know, we, mental health impacts on everyone, mm. but certainly, you know, men have been less likely to reach out, less mm. likely to talk and share and less likely to confront and less likely to be aware, you know, and, and that's, that's concerning. And, and if you think if there's lots of uh, other diseases, which men, not even in physical health, men are more likely to have cardiovascular disease, for example. There could be lots of reasons for that. Well, there are lots of reasons for that. But the point is that we uh, we just need to be more open. Um, but I think we, the times are changing, that's for sure. And and this podcast, again, is comp- is contributing to that. Um, and just there's lots of, you know, there's lots of great initiatives going on nationally in terms of people raising the profile. You know, there's... Prince Harry and, and Prince William doing excellent work and really shining a torch mm-hmm. on mental health. There's lots of sports stars really engaging. Um, in fact, there's a lot, I mean, there's, I can't think of, there's a number of cricketers and footballers over the years who, who've talked about mental health issues and, and really put their money where their mouth is. Mm-hmm. The more we do that, the better things will, will come. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, to what extent is is rugby league engaging in this? Because um, I know, for example, in football, you know, one example comes to mind in Scotland. There's a number of initiatives trying to help men with their both physical and uh, their mental health. But it's happening in five side football. It's happening on Sunday league. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, football. Is there any of those sort of events happening in rugby league? Or yeah, there's 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 a lot, mate. There's a lot. There's obviously this. I'm a rugby league player, and we set up mentality in aid of that. Um, Luke Campbell is an ex rugby league player. Um, does something called you might have heard of it Andy's Man Club ah right yeah of um, course yeah. which is kind of a process where a lot of guys get, get around and talk the state of mind round um, which is a charity set up um, from the RFL uh, which which is is run to kind of 
raise awareness and direct people to, to different points. So I think rugby league is probably a, a leading leading sport, mm. I imagine. Great. And and I think because of the the, the macho kind of stereotype that you get, um it's it's very counterintuitive for people to, to imagine um, mm. rugby league. And it's more important for that, I think. Yeah, like, I, I remember I, I coming across so. your article mm. when I was in a bad way and seeing someone who you perceive as, you know, rugby league players don't suffer. You know, they mm. go and put their bodies on the line. They're not going to worry about everyday things in life is what I probably might have misinterpreted at the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure I, I knew you had the capacity to, but you just naturally presume strong alpha male types won't go through the stuff that I would. Mm. But then doing this podcast is, you know, showing people that actually these things are equal opportunities, ailments, they'll affect anyone no yeah. matter what. It yeah. doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's quite an important message and particularly rugby mm. league being a alpha male kind of dominated sport. Um, it's important that, you know, you guys mm. are saying that message as well. I think that's a great line. Chris, you're right. Mental health is an equal opportunity mm. uh, yeah. thing. I mean, which is extraordinary because you're right. It impacts one. It doesn't see race, color, uh, socioeconomic status, status, education, nothing. Mm. But the other thing we haven't mentioned, guys, which is important, I think why this podcast is really timely. This is Mental Health Awareness Week. Mm. Yep. So there's lots of initiatives going on, really trying to raise awareness and get people to think differently and to engage. So um, I think it's that's also great, good timing in, in terms of talking about stress, how, given that stress is pervasive for all of us and how we can cope better with it. Yeah. Two things I wanted to ask that we haven't touched upon, but I think are quite important because for me, when I was in a highly stressed state, I didn't sleep well at all. And getting mm. sleep back was a massive kind of foundational pillar for me for feeling good. And the other one um, was alcohol. I, you know, I, I like a drink, but now I kind of have a rule all that if I have a beer, it's for the right reason and to enhance a situation with friends or family um, to have a nicer time. And it's, you know, the idea is I'm not running away from anything. I'm going to enhance the present moment for the right reason. But in the past, I perhaps would have a drink because I was feeling really stressed or, and I knew that it would go away temporarily and, you know, it would come back stronger. But uh, so I wanted to hear your thoughts on perhaps sleep first and alcohol or however you want to take mm. those two. No, that's good. Let's start with sleep. Um, so there's, I mean, we talked a lot about rumination, right? So one of the biggest, we're doing a study at the moment where we've looked at what disrupts sleep the most, right? In terms of psychological factors and particularly, is there evidence that this rumination, this kind of negative, repetitive thinking, and that's really strong evidence that people who are more likely to ruminate, they have very disrupted sleep. And disrupting sleep, sleep is probably, you know, one of the most important health behaviors that we engage in. In fact, interestingly, for a long time, people didn't see sleep as a health behavior. They just saw it as sleep, a thing we do. And sometimes we dream and sometimes we have nightmares and we wake up and we have this thing called REM and that's it. Whereas over the last five or 10 years, in particular, probably five years, it's a, we now use the phrase sleep health, which is the idea we need to do it better. So I couldn't agree more. It's, it, has a, it has this really nasty cyclical effect. Yeah, definitely. I was, in a, I was going to bed in like a fight or flight mode. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you think about the processes, my body was probably, you know, in its mind, it was going to bed in a cave where there might be a danger every night because it was, I was never getting into, I never felt restored. Mm -hmm. And I'd always wake up at about four or five in the morning and wouldn't be able to get back to sleep. 
And it was like my body was waking me up because it was, you know, going to bed with a threat. And Absolutely. But then what was happening then is then you're waking up the next day I'm with no sleep. Awful. Yeah, you're feeling yeah. awful. Your cognitions, you know, we all know when you're sleep deprived, your your basic cognitions are completely erroneous and and off the wall. So then that exacerbates your stress on everything that you're feeling bad about. And then you have another night of not sleeping. Yeah. And, yeah, and this yeah. is why sleep yeah. is often a very key uh indicator of clinical depression because that's really when somebody's at that real end of of a very stressful and exposed time so yeah i mean it's it's so important that's why again the the things like your worry postponement or your improving your sleep hygiene there's lots of interventions about you know how people can engage better with have better sleep hygiene and this is not even individuals who are an extreme level of of sleep disruption you know, it's about switching off your iPhone and or your any other device and, uh, you know, not having TV in your room. Uh, it's about exercising shortly before bed. It's about trying to either meditate before you sleep, things like that, which mm. will improve sleep hygiene, which will improve sleep quality, mm. which will allow you better to cope with stress anyway. And so it did the, take a while because mm. I, I did those things and it wasn't overnight. No. Obviously sleep's overnight, but, <laughs> but the process <laughs> wasn't. Uh, yes. But like I, I you know, I, I would try and get good habits and I just used to put my faith in that in the long run, they'll pay off. And it did, you know, and eventually it does kind of work. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, it will, but it, you, it's about, you have to stick to it. Yeah. Uh, it, there's no there's no kind of magic bullet which will happen immediately so that's entirely right and maybe that's a really good thing to people to be aware of is that most of these interventions we're talking about these tools that people might want to engage in you need to stick with them they need to become more maintained behaviors otherwise they'll just be a flash in the pan or won't work mm. but picking up on the alcohol thing so again on, on the top 10 tips on that on that blog i've written in terms of you stress aware one is about alcohol and eating. And then one is to be aware of that and and to limit alcohol intake. Because we know that um, alcohol ultimately is damaging for us over a long period of time. But particularly in trying to cope with stressful events or or conditions linked to depression and anxiety. Because they'll temporarily fix it. So you'll forget about it. It'll suppress your thoughts. Um but ultimately, it also disrupts brain chemistry and things like serotonergic mm. systems. So the serotonin, which is really important, and all the dopamine and all the, all the basic brain chemistry things that we need to self-regulate better, it disrupts those as well. So again, it's a short-term fix. So you're right. I think most clinicians um, and most medical practitioners in situations where there's high levels of stress or depression or anxiety would really urge people to try and stay away from alcohol. Because um, it will not solve your problem in that short term. But again, in moderation, it's absolutely fine. Um, this is shifting gears a lot, this. Um, but I, I picked up on the fact that you said you're an identical twin. Um, is he a psychologist as well? He is, yeah. So Right, this is interesting. Yeah, so right there. <laughs> <laughs> so a very... He looks you, like uh, me, on the surprisingly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so... Have you run any like, so I imagine you had the similar upbringing and stuff. Have you run any kind of formal or informal tests on different environmental factors or, you know, different locations, settings and stuff like that? I mean, it's a good question. So it's mostly by chance that we're both psychologists. So I went to university not to study psychology. Um, Rory went to university to study psychology and then I got hooked. Actually, what's interesting, I got hooked on psychology 
in what we call the Psychology 101 module, right? Which is a module you hear about all the, the exciting studies, the introductory studies. And what hooked me was discovering that lots of psychology and lots of good science is based on identical twin studies. Mm-hmm. So you're able to, and, and those kind of, and, and the adoption studies where you're able to look at environment, control environment mm-hmm. or not. So actually that's what got me excited. I thought, started thinking, well, actually, isn't it really cool that twins are so important to mm-hmm. health, understanding intelligence, development, understanding developmental processes, understanding lots of different um, psychological disorders in terms of heritability, et cetera. So actually that's what happened. And then I started doing more psychology and psychology became a thing. And and that was interesting actually to disclose, um, which is so I spent 18 years, 18 years of my life being a twin. So living in Derry in Northern Ireland, where it was a case of the O'Connor twins. Then I went to Liverpool University, Rory went to Queen's University, Belfast, and we were individuals. Really mm. interesting. Mm. And then as our careers, when we did our PhDs and we started working closely together and we've published many papers over the years and we're collaborating a lot um, at the moment, then becoming a twin again. So we go to meetings and conferences and yeah. people either mix us up or whatever it is. <laughs> it, you know, it happens to me, it happens as all, it happened, it's happened all over the world where people right. will come up to you and, and uh, either think you're the one person or the other. Yeah. So, but the answer to the question is, I think it was, I don't think it's genetic that we're both psychologists, right. um, but being an identical twin is a crucial factor on why I am a psychologist for the reasons I've outlined. And a reason I suppose I've pursued of a career is it's great being a twin. It's great collaborating with Rory um, mm-hmm. because he also can be my, my worst or best critic, however you might describe yeah, it. Yeah. So I can send him a paper and he can uh, rip it to shreds shred, or not. Or, <laughs> yeah. So it's good, but it's, 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 a, it's a good thing being a twin. It's a, and also the one thing it actually speaks to, which I didn't say, we haven't used the two words, social support. Okay. So social support, we touched upon it, but we haven't been explicit. Mm. So social support is this extraordinary variable, which is powerful in terms of protecting us, right? And I'm going to crudely, and hopefully many listeners won't be too upset, but I would suggest there's gender differences here, right? Women are much more likely to reach out and engage with social support mechanisms. So I give the example of my twin calling me, you know, last night to vent. That's a great example of social support. And that's something that he and I have used over our, most of our life. We're there for each other. Men are less likely to do that. And, and, and social support can be in anything. It could be from meeting your colleagues for a beer in the pub. It could be, you know, your, your five-a-size football at the weekend. It could be you're calling your parents for instrumental support or financial support. But the point is social support is something that we, A, should be aware of as well and engage in. And there's a really classic study by Berkman and Sign back in 1979, and it's, it's as important as it, now as it was then, is the idea that uh, people who have smaller social support networks die younger. Simple, right? We've got all this amazing work now done, in, certainly by Rachel Reeves, the excellent Labour uh, MP, from Leeds um, on loneliness. You know, loneliness is now, we're trying to see loneliness as as important as blood pressure or cholesterol levels. Loneliness kills, you know, in the sense that, and that at at all levels, but that's about social support. It's also about stress. You know, people who are lonely, there's lots of factors why they might either take their own lives or die earlier, but stress plays a role there as well. But social support is key. Not having social support in your life is um, is a major problem. Could you just touch on some of the reasons why, um, whether it's evidence-based or 
um, subjective that, that men find it harder to, to reach out or to, to, to take on that social sport? It's difficult to know. I mean, men are, men on average, don't forget, these are average differences yeah. if we have any at all, which means that many men, and I think we've got four of us probably in the room who are people who reach out and talk and for various reasons and, and, and many people that I know have the same viewpoint as I have. Um, but sadly, people who are more vulnerable are probably less likely to do that. Um, and I think, man, because there's stigma about it, actually. There's stigma and social support. The other thing is reaching out to the medical and healthcare professionals, right? Speaking of moving, it's reaching out to healthcare professionals. That's all social support is one way or, the le- or, or mm-hmm. another. But I think there's been a stigma around it. So there's, there's, there's this macho culture that used to exist um, uh, which is changing radically, but I think that that's about you know I'm male and I there's no need for me I'm all protecting and all conquering I can cope with everything, so I think that exists um, less so, but that explains it. But the stigma is important. Stigma about mental health issues is extraordinary. I mean, you know myself and my twin have been saying this for twenty twenty five years nearly. I think Rory published a paper right back in the early nineties, so well late nineties whatever it was. Where he, you know, one of the concluding points was, and this was to do with male suicide, which was the stigma around a man going to see his or her uh, his GP was huge. You wouldn't do it for mental health reasons. You yeah. wouldn't have done that. Yeah, yeah. So, but there's, I think, there's the same sort of informal stigma, if I will, about chatting to your friends about issues that you may be experiencing. Mm. You know, if you ask people, um, if we stopped twenty men on the street here in Leeds. How many would answer the question, yeah, I speak to my male friends about stressful things in my life? I would say mm. you'd find a pretty low yeah. number. Mm. Yeah. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be, I would argue it wouldn't be greater than 60%. We should do that study, but hey, yeah. but the point I'm making, that needs to change more. And it's the people who are most vulnerable are less likely to reach out and seek that social support. That was good, wasn't it? It's really good chat, yeah. That was good. Have you just, got any burning questions? Yeah, yeah just before we wrap up, um, I'm just conscious that, you know, people listening might be just going through an acute period of stress right now and they might be young or they might be old and recognising, or older, sorry, and recognising that oh, I've been stressful for 50, 60 years and worrying, but mm. it's never too late to stop and start redressing and mm. start doing some of these mechanisms to start rewiring and recovering yeah. and You've mentioned your top tips a few times. We'll tweet them out and you don't have to, I'm not going to, it's not a test to account all, all of them, but could you maybe just finish with uh, as many as you can remember of top tips? Sure. No, that's no problem at all. Um, I mean, I think the first thing before we just go with the top tips, but I think it is important that if anybody is experiencing difficulties, do reach out. So if that's both to, you know, if you are experiencing symptoms related to stress, anxiety, depression, you know, go and speak to your GP. Um, it's really important. You know, we haven't talked about things like burnout and these other factors, but Unless you, you know, reach out and you might need that time off, then uh, you'll continue experiencing those things. Mm. Also, there's lots of really good networks out there from the Samaritans and that you don't have to be suicidal to, you know, contact the Samaritans. They're there for, you know, to be, to be an ear to listen to. Um, and also there's, you know, in Leeds and elsewhere nationally and internationally, the NHS have got great um, websites on how you, you know, top tips as well, but coping with stress. Um mm as well as um, there's other helplines to do with Nightline and uh, all that. So, you know, please, it's important that we also say that people Mm. should reach out um, and speak to friends and colleagues and family and partners if you are feeling the the negative effects of stress. Because, you know, I think the theme that's been through this entire podcast is about sharing and talking and being aware and reaching out. So I think they're they're important things. 
But yeah, so I have, as I, I conveniently printed out earlier, Chris, <laughs> just in case I was asked this very question. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so I have actually just uh, got a copy of the kind of top 10 tips that I've put on, on the end of the blog. But I do urge um, listeners to go to the blog because it touches upon all the different issues that we've mm. covered today and also gives you links to other papers that you know you can freely download if um, you're interested in learning more of the science as well as um, uh, related or, um, articles we've written. But the top tips I have, first of all, the number one is discover what causes you stress. So that's mm. entirely a bit of awareness. Second one is manage your time better. We haven't talked about that at all today, but the list making also helps you manage mm. time better. Um, but probably number one of every stress management course, particularly in a workplace, is about time management. Adopt a healthier diet and exercise more. So mm. again, diet's a big one. Yeah, diet's yeah, a big one. Because yeah, yeah. diet and, 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 and exercise are so inextricably linked in lots of ways. If you eat healthily, have a balanced enough diet, as well as um, exercise, you will feel better. I mean, I mentioned very early on the podcast, you know, when you're stressed, you eat unhealthy foods, high fat, energy dense foods, which aren't good for brain health and they're not good for physical health. So uh, important to be aware of that mm. and be aware that stress triggers those changes. Um, save up your worries for 15 minutes a day. So that's the idea of the worry postponement. Find a time during the day in, in order to do that, um, if you're, particularly for the sort of person who does that a lot. Say no more. People, you know, we get lots of requests from many different parts of our life. It's okay to say no. You know, people aren't going to think differently and think badly of you. Mm. And it'll help you more. Turn off email and social media. I mean, this is ironic myself because I'm addicted to all of these things. But the one time I do turn off uh, email is when I go on holiday. But I think we all can do that much better. Mm. Social media, particularly, you know, if it's a sporting arena, um, that's very important. Number seven is avoid negative health behaviors. And that's what we talked about earlier, alcohol, mm -hmm. caffeine, nicotine. Yep. So we know that the evidence in all these areas aren't good for you, particularly if you're in a period of acute stress. Um, I think the alcohol one is key here because it will have a damaging effect on all aspects of the process of trying to recover. We talked this already as well. Number eight, accept that some situations will be tough. This speaks to the whole acceptance commitment therapy literature. This is the idea that Sometimes you have to go, you know what, it was tough and that's okay. So acceptance is, is really key um, uh, to lots of therapies, but also key that we can all decide upon. And actually have it as a tool and go, you know what, I'm accepting that and, yeah. um, and move on. Number nine, and I think actually, uh, Steve, you talked this much earlier on about your rest after games and those mm. gaps. So take time out to relax and recharge. Um, and it also speaks to the mindfulness, the meditation literature. You know, Chris, you mentioned as well, I think so, so important. Um, and it is about recognizing lots of people say, I'm really stressed. I've no time to do X, Y, and Z. Make the time. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be long. You know, this is why mm -hmm. I you know, engage in 5K runs. I can do those quickly. I can fit it into my schedule. Um, and that works for me. So mm -hmm. it's what works for you. And then the final one is to see positives in difficult and stressful situations. So the one thing I started off saying is that stress is a psychological construct. It's about appraisal. So instead of seeing it as a negative thing, think of, you know, as a threat, take the positive out there. Think, what have I learned from that situation? Mm. So take most stressful situations you can find a positive in. And if you do that, that can also benefit you. And then the final thing I will say, write about positive events in your life. There's a whole area now on positive psychology, which is write about 
things which work for you. We, we, we've talked about that yeah. before. And one of the things I forgot to mention was that I would write my top three moments of the day in the evening. Yeah. And that kind of made me look for the positive rather than negative. Absolutely, but, Chris. I mean, that's so important. And find the positive, write about them. Um, you know, engage in, there's a th this whole theory I didn't talk, which is linked to the self-esteem work, which is all self-affirmation. You know, it's about reminding yourself that you're a very good athlete or writing about the fact that I was kind today. There's these great interventions which are about seeing positives where you go, think about the last time you were kind, which is reminding yourself that actually you are a good person. Because mm -hmm. often when you feel high levels of stress, you are engaging in low levels of good self-regulation. You forget that you're a good person or you've got good qualities as well as bad qualities. But reminding yourself, which is called self-affirming, that yields really impressive benefits for self-esteem, but also for physical health. So again, these are all outlined in the podcast or here in the podcast, but also on that website. But there are my mm. top 10 tips. There's just cool. easy ones. We can all pick them up. We can all yeah. choose which ones we might want to use. Uh, and I guarantee you one thing, if you start engaging in some of them, it will definitely help you regulate better in general life and navigate stress better. And hopefully you'll feel better as a result. And just finally, Daryl, um, have you got anywhere you want to point people towards or any Twitter, you know, Instagram well, or website? Well, in fact, yeah. Or? So, I mean, if you, the, you can, you'll hopefully link to the podcast. So, that, so we've, my website is the laboratory for, for um, stress and health research, but also my Twitter feed, which I use a lot, which is health psych at Leeds. Mm -hmm. um, so, or sorry, at health psych Leeds. So again, we can maybe put those in the podcast yeah, as well. We'll but yeah. again, you'll see lots of links to various talks I've given and, and, and lots of really interesting papers. Cool. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Legend. Thanks, Thank guys. You, it was great, great to be here. Thank really, you very really much. Awesome. And keep up the great work. Will Thank do, you. mate. Thank you.